Hello, this is William Fink, and this is Christogenia Saturdays. Today is Saturday, December 10th, 2016. Praise Yahweh, the God of Israel, and thank you for listening. Tonight we are going to present the Protocols of Satan, Part 20, The Jewish Peril and the Catholic Church. And yes, we have another lengthy digression once again. I um, never know which way these programs are going to take me when I begin to prepare for them. About three weeks ago, I prepared for certain portions of the end of Protocol 2, and I haven't touched them yet. It's about five pages of material that I keep pushing back and pushing back that I, I thought I'd get to three weeks ago. I thought I'd be done with Protocol 2. Maybe next week. Here, once again, we have a lengthy digression. And before proceeding with our commentary on the text of the Protocols of the Learned Elders of Zion, we are going to present and discuss an article titled The Jewish Peril and the Catholic Church, which was published in a periodical called The Catholic Gazette in February of 1936. So far, we have not located a complete copy from any issue of this periodical. However, we have found a few rather informative references which will add to our understanding, I hope, and also to our understanding of the Jewish world conspiracy and resistance to the resistance to the Jewish peril in the 1930s. I had um, had this two-page PDF document on the shelf for a long time because I couldn't find anything in regard to who could have written it or in regard to the publication that it claimed to be from. And I finally found some of that, and, and that's why we are discussing it here tonight. Because a lot of information floats around the internet and Christian identity and, and white nationalist and conspiracy theorist circles and I really don't like to publish anything unless I can learn of its provenance who wrote it, where it came from did that periodical really exist we have fake quotes fake citations floating around constantly that you'll see on 20 or 30 different websites sometimes, and no hint at all at any provenance, any um, any documentation demonstrating the actual source of such quotes. And quite often, such quotes are attributed to certain individuals that never really said those things. And somebody thought it sounded good, or somebody maybe got confused, or maybe somebody just made something up. And before you know it, 50 or 100 people are quoting it, but there's no provenance. Provenance, in, in, in well, well, to me, it, it's really an archaeology term, right? It, it's used mostly in archaeology, but for me, it, it works for literature as well. Providence is the actual proof or documentation of where and when something was discovered so that you know that it came from a certain place, right? So if an artifact is dug up out of out of um out of the ground somewhere, 
there should be a um, a report of it in archaeological journals and documentation of it from the people that found it, usually a university or, or a um, an expedition funded by some other academic organization or some museum. That's called archaeological provenance. Actual proof and drawings and measurements and, and location data of where an object was found by who, the, the, the people on the dig, the witnesses, the, the, the university in question, whatever. It, it's, that's provenance. And there's a lot of things on the internet floating around, especially conspiracy circles that don't have any provenance whatsoever. And those things have to be shelved or even ignored or even rejected because it can't be shown that they're authentic. We have plenty of authentic material to prove our case. We don't need lies or or we don't need anything that's shady or made up or, or possibly... Um, put there just to make us look like fools down the road when it's found out that they're not real. So we can't just jump on things because we like to, because they say what we like to hear. The Catholic Gazette has been connected by some online sources such as Metapedia to one Archbishop Richard Joseph Downey, who was once the Archbishop of Liverpool, investigating this connection, Downey seems to be an interesting character. He really did exist. But as we shall see, Metapedia is entirely wrong to connect him to the Catholic Gazette. Another example of false attribution, uh, of um, shoddy investigation, shoddy research. And for want of better information, this may have caused us to credit this Archbishop Downey with the opinions expressed by the Catholic Gazette in a February 1936 article, which we will present here. So we looked into this Archbishop Downey, and at least some of Downey's papers are cataloged at the National Archives of the United Kingdom, but evidently they are not actually available via the Internet. He is mentioned in the Oxford Dictionary of National Biography, the National Portrait Gallery, and as the Archbishop of Liverpool at the Catholic Hierarchy website, which catalogues Roman Catholic officials. However, except for a decree that he made on Catholic-Anglican relations, which is available at Cambridge.org, we could not locate any of his writing online. We did find mentions of Downey in the same context as that decree in several books on the same subject, Catholic-Anglican relations, in England in the 1930s, but they are not of interest to us here. We also you we also located a used edition of a nineteen thirty three book by Archbishop Downey titled Pulpit and Platform Addresses. And since the price requested was quite reasonable, I think it was like fourteen dollars, what we can expect delivery in a few weeks. We actually ordered it. At first we were inspired to purchase that book because in an obituary for Downey, 
that appeared in the Chicago Tribune on June 17, 1953. We read, throughout his campaign, he campaigned, I'm sorry, throughout his life, he campaigned against communism. In 1932, he urged the isolation of the Red Plague by a boycott on Russian goods. Dr. Downey held a strong opinion about matters and voiced them vigorously. So he ordered that book, reading that, 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 that book, when we found it, we ordered it because we had read that obituary and thought maybe it contained some value, especially since Metapedia had connected Downey to the Catholic Gazette and the article on the Jewish peril. But we find that connection to be wrong. And that's another reason why we decided to do this program tonight, because we wanted to illustrate the importance of checking out things before you leap into them, to make sure that they're right. Just don't just because it's on a website somewhere, or even if it's in a print book somewhere, you should corroborate it with another source before you promote it or, or repeat it in your own research or writing. That That's at least fair scholarship. So we found another mention of this Archbishop Downey, along with a quotation in the collected works of W.B. Yeats, W.B. Yeats, the British poet, in volume two of his collected works titled The Plays, which was published by Scribner in 2001, on pages 753 and 754. And there it says that Richard Joseph Downey became Archbishop of Liverpool in 1928. The mention is in the notes to one of the appendixes to the volume, because in the notes to one of his plays, The Resurrection, Yeats had quoted Downey in reference to a perceived struggle for world control between the Roman Catholic Church and the Communists. And here is what Yeats had written. It might be pronounced Yeats. Here is what Yeats had written in, re- in, in quoting Downey. He, he, he wrote, in 1894, Gorky, referring to the Russian writer, and Lunacharsky. Now, Lunacharsky was a Bolshevik. Both men were supposedly Russians, and both men were atheists, I guess. In 1894, Gorky and Lunacharsky tried to correct the philosophy of Marxian socialism by the best German philosophy of their time. Founding 723 schools at Capri and Boulogne for the purpose But Lenin founded a rival school at Paris and brought Marxian socialism back to orthodoxy. And then a quote from Lenin that Yeats offers, We remain materialist. Anything else would lead to religion. And he goes on to say that four or five years later, Pius X saw a commission of Catholic scholars considering the text of the Bible and its attribution to certain authors. And he dissolved the commission, saying, Moses and the four evangelists wrote the books that are called by their names. Any other conclusion would lead to skepticism. In this way did two great men, and this is the words of Yeats, quoting this Archbishop Downey, In this way did two great men, referring to Lenin and Pius X, prepare two great movements, 
purified of modernism for a crisis when, in the words of Archbishop Downey, they dispute the mastery of the world. So when we saw that quote from the playwright and poet Yeats, and on top of the Chicago Tribune mention of his urging of the isolation of the Red Plague, his fighting of communism, we were um, we were leaning towards the fact that perhaps Metapedia was correct in their connecting him with the Catholic Gazette, but that's still wrong. He still can't be connected to the Catholic Gazette, and tonight we'll find out why, and, and that's r really an underlying thread in this presentation, but it's one that I felt important to point out. So along with the description of Downey found in the Chicago Tribune, this seems to fit the profile of someone who might have produced an article such as the one which we are about to present from the Catholic Gazette. However, we shall see that there is no connection in this manner. In fact, Downey was actually beckoned by the Jews in order to discourage such publications in Catholic periodicals. And he had made at least some attempt to do so, although it may have been half-hearted. So first we shall present the article itself, and then we shall present a record of reactions to it, and similar articles which appeared, and a record of similar articles which appeared regularly in the Catholic periodicals in Britain throughout the 1930s, which demonstrates that Catholics and National Socialists had common concerns in regard to the Jews in the decades between the two world wars. It also demonstrates that Catholics were indeed among the most vociferous heralds announcing the Jewish conspiracy to rule the world, at least in the early decades of the 20th century. And no, we're not defending Catholicism, but like everything else, Catholics aren't all bad. The Jewish Peril in a Catholic Church from the Catholic Gazette, February 1936, and it's prefaced with an editorial note, that there has been and still is a Jewish problem. No one can deny, since the rejection of Israel, or actually the rejection of Esau, 1900 years ago, the Jews have scattered in every direction, and in spite of difficulties and even persecution, they have established themselves as a power in nearly every nation of Europe. Jacobs, in his Jewish contributions to civilization, glories in the fact that without detriment to their own racial unity and international character, the Jews have been able to spread their doctrines and increase their political, social, and economic influence among the nations. International character, because they're all mongrels. In view of this Jewish problem, which affects the Catholic Church in a special way, we publish the following amazing extracts from a number of speeches recently made under the auspices of a Jewish society in Paris. The name of our informant must remain concealed. He is personally known to us, but by reason of his 
peculiar relations with the Jews at the present time, we have agreed not to disclose his identity, nor to give any further details of the Paris meeting beyond the following extracts, which, though sometimes freely translated, nevertheless substantially convey the meaning of the original statements. And what we're about to read is basically a collection of statements constituting a diatribe which sounds very much like the Protocols of Zeon. As long as there remains among the Gentiles any moral conception of the social order, and until all faith, patriotism, and dignity are uprooted, our reign over the world shall not come. Well, the Jews have indeed, through their mass media, eradicated all of those things. They go on to say, We have already fulfilled part of our work, but we cannot yet claim that the whole of our work is done. We have still a long way to go before we can overthrow our main opponent, the Catholic Church. We must always bear in mind that the Catholic Church is the only institution which has stood and which will, as long as it remains in existence, stand in our way. The Catholic Church, with her methodical work and her edifying and moral teachings, will always keep her children in such a state of mind as to make them too self-respecting to yield to our domination and to bow before our future King of Israel. That is why we have been striving to discover the best way of shaking the Catholic Church to her very foundations. We have spread the spirit of revolt and false liberalism among the nations of the Gentiles, so as to persuade them away from their faith and even to make them ashamed of professing the precepts of their religion and obeying the commandments of their church. We have brought many of them to boast of being atheists, and more than that, to glory in being descendants of the ape. We have given them new theories, impossible of realization, such as communism, anarchism, socialism, which are now serving our purpose. The stupid Gentiles have accepted them with the greatest enthusiasm, without realizing that those theories are ours, and that they constitute our most powerful instrument against themselves. We have blackened the Catholic Church with the most ignominious calumnies. We have stained her history and disgraced even her noblest activities. We have imputed to her the wrongs of her enemies, Jewish projection, and have thus brought these later to stand more closely by our side. So much so that we are now witnessing, to our greatest satisfaction, rebellions against the church in several countries. We have turned her clergy in, into objects of hatred and ridicule. We have subjected them to the contempt of the crowd. We have caused the practice of the Catholic religion to be considered out of date and a mere waste of time. And the Gentiles, in their stupidity, had proved easier dupes than we expected them to be. One would expect mere intelligence and more practical common sense, but they are no better than a herd of sheep. Let them graze in our fields till they become fat enough to be worthy of being immolated to our future king of the world. We have founded many secret associations, which all work for our purpose, under our directions and our orders. 
We have made it an honor, a great honor, for the Gentiles to join us in our organizations, which are, thanks to our gold, flourishing now more than ever. Yet it remains our secret that those Gentiles who betray their own and most precious interests by joining us in our plot should never know that those associations are of our creation and that they serve our purpose. One of the many triumphs of our Freemasonry is that those Gentiles who become members of our lodges should never suspect that we are using them to build their own jails, upon whose terraces we shall erect the throne of our universal King of Israel, and should never know that we are commanding them to forge the chains of their own servility to our future King of the world. So far we have considered our strategy in our attacks upon the Catholic Church from the outside, but this is not all. Let us now explain how we have gone further in our work to hasten the ruin of the Catholic Church and how we have penetrated into her most intimate circles and brought even some of her clergy to become pioneers of our cause. And in truth, the Jews were penetrating the highest strata of the Catholic Church from the 13th and 14th centuries. Apart altogether from the influence of our philosophy, we have taken other steps to secure a breach in the Catholic Church. Let me explain how this has been done. We have induced some of our children to join the Catholic body 600 years before this, right? Nicholas of Lyra, Paul of Burgos, Raymond Lowell. We've discussed them all in our Martin Luther series. Martin Luther received many of his own doctrines from Jews, converso Jews. We have induced some of our children to join the Catholic body with the explicit intimation that they should work in a still more efficient way for the disintegration of the Catholic Church by creating scandals within her. We have thus followed the advice of our Prince of the Jews who so wisely said, and we had quoted this several weeks ago, in our segment, Are These Things So, recently in this series. We have thus followed the advice of our Prince of the Jews, who so wisely said, Let some of your children become canons, so that they may destroy the church. And the Jews don't need a plot to do that. You make Jewish officers in the Christian church, and they will create these perversions, corruptions, these schisms. They'll do it naturally. They'll start to accept homosexuals. They'll start to encourage race mixing. They'll do that naturally. They'll start to pollute basic doctrines. They'll do that naturally. I'm not defending the Catholic Church. The Catholic Church of the Middle Ages had many, many faults. An innumerable list of faults. And the reformers had many good intentions. An innumerable list of good intentions. But the Jews took advantage of all that so that they came out on top because the reformers were assisted by the Jews and didn't guard against them. Or they were possibly Jews themselves. 
at least some of them. Let some of your children become canons so that they may destroy the church. Unfortunately, not all among the convert Jews have proved faithful to their mission. Many of them have even betrayed us. But on the other hand, others have kept their promise and honored their word. Thus the counsel of our elders has proved successful. We are the fathers of all revolutions, even of those which sometimes happen to turn against us. We are the supreme masters of peace and war. We can boast of being the creators of the Reformation. Calvin was one of our children. He was of Jewish descent and was entrusted by Jewish authority and encouraged with Jewish finance to draft his scheme in the Reformation. Martin Luther yielded to the influence of his Jewish friends, and again by Jewish authority and with Jewish finance, his plot against the Catholic Church met with success. Now Calvin may well have been a Jew, and if he wasn't, because we're really not certain, he should have been, as his doctrines are very favorable to the perpetuation of many Jewish lies. And he was favorable to Jewish usury, which Luther stood against. It is also true that Luther was deceived by Jews, and Jews and their humanist dupes did indeed figure very heavily in Luther's success. The Roman Catholic Church more than deserved to go into perdition for its policies, but the Jews certainly took every opportunity to exploit the divisions for their own gain. The article continues... The words of the Jews in the article continues. Thanks to our propaganda, to our theories of liberalism, and to our misrepresentations of freedom, the minds of many among the Gentiles were ready to welcome the Reformation. They separated from the church to fall into our snare. And thus the Catholic Church has been very sensibly weakened and her authority over the kings of the Gentiles has been almost reduced to naught. We are grateful to Protestants for their loyalty to our wishes, although most of them are, in the sincerity of their faith, unaware of their loyalty to us. We are grateful to them to the wonderful help they are giving us in our fight against the stronghold of Christian civilization and in our preparations for the advent of our supremacy over the whole world and over the kingdoms of the Gentiles. And we have to say that the Protestants all had the ideal of freedom of intellectual thought and exploration. And they all had sympathy to the Jews who they saw as being suppressed and persecuted. Their writings were suppressed and persecuted. Their Talmud, and especially their Kabbalah, which all of the inquiring minds of Europe wanted to peer into, saw the Jews as being suppressed and persecuted, and sought their own intellectual liberty, and to worship their God as they saw fit, they handicapped themselves with their sympathy for the Jews, thinking that the Jews only sought the same intellectual liberty and to worship their God as they saw fit. So the Protestants, in their short-sightedness and naivety, basically 
intellectually handicapped themselves in the Reformation and could not defend Christendom against the Jews, where the Catholics, with all their faults, and even with their acceptance of the crypto-Jews and the converso-Jews, still very well defended Europe against Jewry and kept the Jews contained when they wouldn't convert. So it's a two-edged sword. Both of them had their faults. But the Protestants were amenable to the Jews right from the beginning. And that has been the curse on our modern Protestant civilization, without a doubt. The Catholic Gazette continues. So far we have succeeded in overthrowing most of the thrones of Europe, because after they overthrew the Pope, the kings themselves were exposed, and that's exactly what happened. The rest will follow in the near future. Russia has already worshipped our rule. France, with her Masonic government, is under our thumb. England, in her dependence upon our finance, is under our heel. And in her Protestantism is our hope for the destruction of the Catholic Church. Spain and Mexico are but toys in our hands. And many other countries, including the United States, have already fallen before our scheming. This is 1936. The United States fell in 1913. But the Catholic Church is still alive. Until they destroyed the last vestiges of that at Vatican II. We must destroy her without the least delay and without the slightest mercy. Most of the press in the world is under our control. Let us therefore encourage in a still more violent way the hatred of the world against the Catholic Church. Let us intensify our activities in poisoning the morality of the Gentiles. Let us spread the spirit of revolution in the minds of the people. They must be made to despise patriotism and the love of their family, to consider their faith as a humbug, their obedience to their church as a degrading servility, so that they may become deaf to the appeal of the church and blind to her warnings against us. Let us, above all, make it impossible for Christians outside the Catholic Church to be reunited with that Church, or for non-Christians to join that Church. Otherwise, the greatest obstruction to our domination will be strengthened and all our work undone. Our plot will be unveiled, the Gentiles will turn against us, in the spirit of revenge, and our domination over them will never be realized." Let us remember that as long as there still remain active enemies of the Catholic Church, we may hope to become masters of the world. And let us remember always that the future Jewish king will never reign in the world before the Pope in Rome is dethroned, as well as all the other reigning monarchs of the Gentiles upon earth. And that's the conclusion, and then there is an author's note. Before these facts came to my knowledge... I was rather careless in the fulfillment of my religious duties. Of course, this is a Catholic periodical, right? But since then, my faith, thank God, has grown stronger and stronger, and my belief in the Catholic Church as being the only bulwark against the enemies of our Christian civilization has become further than ever, firmer than ever. That is why I pray that every Christian be warned against the impending danger of the Jewish plot 
so that the whole Christian world may rally under the banner of the Catholic Church and must be united against our common, powerful foe. And it didn't happen. And that's signed in the facsimile copy that's been floating around the internet for many years. That's signed GG. And it's pretty clear that it's typed GG. We do not know who GG is, or even, as we suspect, that the humble signature isn't merely a typographical error for CG, or Catholic Gazette. However, in any case, the tenor of these alleged boasts of this Jewish society, which were presented in this article, certainly accords with that of the Protocols of Zion and many other sources which published very similar information in this same era. Evidently, several other Catholic publications were doing the very same thing. So here we shall make a rather long citation from a book titled Church, Nation, and Race, Catholics and Antisemitism in Germany and England from 1940, I'm sorry, from 1918 to 1945. Now this book is by Ulrike Erit, and it's published at Manchester University in 2011. We do not have our own copy of the entire book, but here we rely on Google Books, which has provided us with a liberal portion of the material we require in order to clarify what we have just read from the Catholic Gazette, while also corroborating its publication and more accurately describing how Archbishop Downey was involved in this matter. So this chapter serves us to show that this article from the Catholic Gazette is indeed what it is claimed to be, an article from a Catholic publication in Britain in the 1930s which was actually only one of many such articles published over the years leading up to the Second World War. Here we will find that while we have already demonstrated that the mainstream press in Britain, in Germany, and in the United States, and in France, were under almost total control of the Jews. There were a few holdout publications at this time but they were almost all controlled by the Jews. The Catholic press, most of it, was not yet controlled by the Jews. And it seems that the Jews were pretty upset with that. Now, before we begin, we must state that this author, Ulrike Ehret, I'm sorry, Eret, E-H-R-E-T, Ulrike Eret, is not our friend. She, and we only found out at the last minute that the name was feminine, she seems to be very sympathetic to the Jews, dismissive of the fact that the Jews have indeed conspired against Christendom for many centuries, and apathetic to any real historical information which does indicate the existence of a Jewish Masonic conspiracy. I'm not saying that she's a Jew, but her mind is certainly Judaized. And since Ered's book is informative to us for other reasons, besides the fact that it corroborates the legitimacy of our article from the Catholic Gazette, we will begin from a quotation from a chapter on anti-Semitism 
in Roman Catholic newspapers of the early 20th century that betrays her ignorance of the Jewish problem in many respects, as she cannot seem to understand how a supposedly Catholic publication called The Catholic Worker would not be critical of Jewry. And she says that among the Catholic newspapers and periodicals in England, there was one weekly that not only refrained from publishing anti-Semitic articles, but also stood up against the anti-Semitic slander prevalent in the late 1930s. The Catholic worker did not acknowledge the existence of a Jewish question. Its articles maintained that Jews were not different from other British citizens, and that allegations of a Jewish conspiracy or their strong hostility towards Christianity were nonsense. Although contributions to the Catholic worker shared the theological definition of the Jews as a witness people who would ultimately convert to Christianity to prove that Christian theology was right, they strongly rejected the claim of the Jews' anti-Christian attitude. With this dismissal, the Catholic workers stood out from all other Catholic publications. As the Catholic worker did not see the existence of a Jewish question, there was no need to offer a solution, but only to emphasize the equality of Jews. In a Catholic conception of a state, according to the Catholic worker, any minority had the right to develop their own culture, and the state has the duty to enable them to do so. And with particular reference to the Jews, it continued, there is a Catholic program for the Jews, that if a Jew breaks the law, treat him as a lawbreaker, but do not presume that a Jew must break the law. Strict laws regulating trade would safeguard this without the extreme measure of prohibiting immigration, as Mosley suggests. And that's the end of her quote from the Catholic worker. The reference to Mosley is, of course, to Oswald Mosley of the British Union of Fascists. There should be no doubt that a supposedly Catholic publication with a Marxist-leaning name such as the Catholic Worker would at this time be little but a tool of the Bolshevik Jews designed to subvert the minds of unsuspecting Catholics to its own cause. So the author doesn't recognize the propaganda because she doesn't believe that the Jews have a plot. Furthermore, if the Jews converted to Christianity, it would not prove Christian theology to be correct, but rather whenever Jews are allowed or encouraged to do so, it represents a betrayal of Christ by Christians. Christian theology is proven to be correct over and again as Jews have attempted to destroy it or subvert it in order to permanently corrupt it from the will of its original author. Now, this belief that Jews w would miraculously convert is seen here, and it's been around for a long time, that Jews would somehow, at the end of the age, miraculously convert to Christ, and they would all be saved, and they would be put above the Gentiles, even though they have literally pissed all over Christ for 2,000 years, killed him, glory in killing him, and he told them that they never had any part with them. We see how long this 
false doctrine has been around. Here in the 1930s, it's in Catholic circles, but all throughout modern America, it's been in Protestant circles for probably since the beginning of Protestantism. And Martin Luther and other reformers believed that they would convert all the Jews. And when Martin Luther failed to convert the Jews, he turned on them and wrote on the Jews and their lies. That's why he wrote it, because they wouldn't convert. Continuing with Elrika Eret, I hope I'm not destroying her name too much, under the subtitle, Anti-Semitism Over Time, she says, it is instructive to look at the distribution of anti-Semitic articles in the Catholic papers over time, as it allows interpretations of the motive and purpose of these articles. And of course, she's not going to nail any of that. She says, two observations can be made. Firstly, the intensity of anti-Semitic articles oscillates with peaks around 1923-33 and 38 to 39. This suggests that these anti-Semitic outbursts were motivated by particular events rather than being a constant Catholic obsession. Secondly, the outburst in 1938 and 39 occurred anti-cyclically, cyclically, I'm sorry, to the national concern with the Jewish question when most broadsheet English newspapers made only moderate use of anti-Semitism. And I'm sorry, we must wonder where she found evidence for this statement, as we could not access all of the notes, we could not see the source. They wanted $115 for this book in the Kindle edition at Amazon, and $50 for hardcover. And I'm not paying $115 for a Kindle edition. That is just highway robbery. That is just what a Jew would charge for the Kindle edition of a book. <laughs> That's the truth. That's horrible. When the hardcover edition is 50 bucks, She says that on the other side, anti-Semitism in Catholic newspapers was comparatively restrained when the general public was overcome by Jewish Bolshevik scaremongering, or by the phantom of Jewish world conspiracy. When in 1920 the Morning Post and the Times printed the Protocols of the Elders of Zion, stirring up a wave of anti-Semitic feelings over the following two years, the Catholic Times ignored it altogether, and the month another Catholic periodical, maintained that the protocols were just bogus documents which endangered religious peace. Only Charles Diamond of the Catholic Herald commented on the protocols in a review article and admitted that the accusation of the protocol seemed deranged, but accepted its basic assumption, namely the struggle between Jewry and Christianity. In relation to the secular papers, the author fails to note that it was the Times which had gone to great lengths to discredit the Protocols when it published the articles by Philip Graves in 1921, where they were claimed to be a forgery of Alexander Jolie's Dialogue in Hell between Machiavelli and Montesquieu. 
she goes on to say that the reason for this disparity becomes evident when looking at the occasions that triggered these anti-Semitic outbursts. They were most intense when Catholic interests collided with national British interests. Tolerance and benevolence towards Jews ceased as soon as Catholic interests were thought to be violated, and it doesn't light upon the author that there may have been just reason for the protests that perhaps the Catholics understood that it was Jews behind certain British policies. In the early 1920s, anti-Semitism arose around topics such as Bolshevik Russia, the creation of a Jewish national home in Palestine, current affairs in Catholic countries such as France, Poland, Ireland, or Italy, or the Jews' conversion to Catholicism. In the years between 1924 and 1929, it was mainly the Catholic Mission to the Jews, the Catholic Guild of Israel, that kept the discussion on the Jewish question alive. And somehow I think the Weimar Republic would have done that by itself. Throughout his career, Martin Luther naively thought that he couldn't convert the Jews apart from the Catholic Church. When he failed, he felt betrayed, and finally awoke to the treachery of the lies of the Jews. Twenty-five years after he started the Reformation. But the traditional Catholics, especially the Dominicans who opposed Luther, also thought that they could convert the Jews, and they always had missions to do so. This idea of converting the devils that Christ himself could not and would not convert is arguably the biggest stain on traditional Catholic theology, but it was taken up immediately by Protestants. Back to our author. Reports on Communist Russia are examples of this defense mechanism. From 1921 onwards, Catholic newspapers highlighted the suppression of religion in Soviet Russia. The already latent equation I love the way she puts this like it's not true like if you're a latent homosexual you're not really a fag that's just a false accusation if you have a latent equation of Bolsheviks and Jews it's not really true that's just a false accusation the already latent equation of Jews with Bolsheviks gradually became a constant rhetorical feature as if it was only a handy device rather than an actual truth, in articles on Russia and brought the intensity of anti-Semitic articles to an unprecedentedly high, unprecedentedly high level with the execution of Bishop Bukowitz in Moscow in 1923. Yet Bolshevik Russia has not always been such an emotional topic. Well, it was pretty young in 1923. <laughs> so I would say it hadn't been around long enough to be an emotional topic. The author ignores countless definitive lists which prove that most of the Bolsheviks were Jews and both Lenin and Trotsky as well as 80% of the original Soviet officials were Jews. There can no longer be an honest denial of this. I don't know how she could write that with a straight face. 
except that the author is bogged down repeating some very tired arguments made by the Jews. She says, during the war, and until the early 1920s, anti-Semitism in Britain, coupled with anti-German sentiments, was widespread and at times violent. From 1917, the USA and Western Europe was swept by a red scare that merged with the German menace originating before the First World War. In Britain, anti-Semitism spread to various sections of society, including political, military, and diplomatical, diplomatic circles and the press. This anti-Bolshevism was closely linked with the preoccupation with an overrepresentation of Jews on the more extreme fringes of European socialism, like every single Bolshevik and almost every Menshevik. The result was a reworking of the Jewish conspiracy myth, which was given a tremendous boost by the publication of the Protocols of the Elders of Zion, while the Morning Post and the Times exposed the alleged evil of Russian Bolshevism engineered by Jews, Catholic newspapers initially called for a more considered coverage. For example, Joseph Keating, writing in The Month, and she quotes this month publication often as an example of the more reserved Catholic approach to these things, but that alone sets it apart as just another Bolshevik tool. For example, Joseph Keating, writing in the month, generalization is an is largely an automatic function of the intellect. So, the month is dismissing the Bolshevik threat on the terms of Freudian theology, Freudian psychology. Generalization is largely an automatic function of the intellect. We think in classes and categories, and under the spur of fear, the unbalanced mind is apt to see Jews or Jesuits or Bolsheviks everywhere. The remedy is to go by evidence and to make sure that it is real. And we could say that 93 years later, it's real. <laughs> 93 years after 1923, yeah, it's real. Uh, 99 years after 1917, it's real. They were all Jews. But Keating and his publication, The Month, can't be representative of the typical Catholic paper. I believe our author is highlighting this particular periodical because it has a more reserved line in relation to the Jews, basically doing what she wants it to do by denying the conspiracy. We had discussed the publication of the Protocols by the Morning Post in part three of this series on the Protocols of Satan, but the author's assertions concerning the times are quite contrary to the information which we had presented in our assessment of the Jewish control of the British press in part 12 of this series. And as we said, the Times had published the Philip, Gra the Philip Graves articles that attempted to discredit the legitimacy of the protocols. 
she goes on to say that Charles Diamond of the Catholic Herald likewise did not yet link Bolshevism with Jewish influence. He was more interested in disclosing conspiracies closer to home, Jewish financiers together with Huns and Junkers were perceived to be in an alliance to exploit the poor, as if England ever helped the poor. Diamond's real target was the establishment. He initially supported Lenin as the greatest man, welcomed the land redistribution, and the attempt to educate the lower classes by providing cheap books and cultural events. He interpreted the anti-Bolshevik hysteria of the Tory press from a communist point of view as a ploy to distract public opinion from capitalist crimes. And she goes on to quote him, saying, Meanwhile, the cry about the Jew is a last desperate resort of the Huns in the press, and in Parliament and elsewhere, to divert attention from their own crimes, and to distract the public mind by dishonest irrelevancies. We infinitely prefer to stand beside the revolutionary in his assaults upon the evils that obtain rather than on a platform with the authors and defenders of these infamies. And Charles Diamond will change his tune shortly, and our author quantifies that. This reflects a lack that this that this attitude of Charles Diamond in the Catholic Herald reflects the lack of critical outside the box thinking which is prevalent in our own people. The dichotomies that we are always caught in Protestant versus Catholic, Calvin versus Arminius, Democrat versus Nazi, capitalist versus communist. These dichotomies have always benefited the Jew, because we are always willing to fall into these dichotomies and choose a side, rather than examine them for what they really are. And we're caught in them today. Libertarian versus conservative, for those of us who consider ourselves on the right. And it's another false dichotomy. Continu continuing with Ulrika Arid, where Charles Diamond is further discussed. However, this generous mood soon changed. By April 1921, the Catholic Herald was alarmed by anti-religious measures in Russia and the continued suppression of the peasantry. This was also the moment when the paper discovered the Jewish Bolshevik, a label that would from now on accompany almost every article on communist Russia. And we don't imagine that the Soviets, or I should say the Bolsheviks, closing the churches and leaving the synagogues unmolested had anything to do with that. They, that, that couldn't have had anything to do with that, I presume. Maybe Diamond actually noticed that, and that was the reason. The author of this book never imagines to find anything real to explain the way these Catholics in Britain felt about the Jews and the Bolsheviks. But quoting Diamond again, from the upheaval of the war, as he changed his tune, so to speak, 
From the upheaval of the war emerged the opportunity of the communists to put their theories into practice on a large scale. They have tried to do so. Now the theories are not really Russian. They are those of the German Jew Karl Marx. The Bolshevik leaders are his disciples to some extent only, for they have had to abandon pure Marxism. Nor are all the theorists themselves Russian. Trotsky and a great many others are Jews, and of course it wasn't really published that Lenin was a Jew until recent years. So many people at first thought that Lenin was a Russian, which of course simply wasn't true. Upon Russia and the Russian peasantry, they have imposed their authority, having exterminated whole hecatombs. That's a Greek Greek word. Hecatombs in the plural would be groups of hundreds. Having exterminated whole hecatombs of opponents, socialists, anarchists, capitalists, ruling classes, traitors, and revolting peasantry also. And our author says that, as in 1919, there was an explosion of anti-Semitic articles in Catholic newspapers after Bishop Budkowitz was imprisoned and executed in Moscow in spring 1923. This came at a time when, according to Sharman Kaddish, and we will discuss her in a moment, the myth of a Jewish conspiracy had moved to the extreme of society due to the strength of the liberal tradition in Britain. However, in 1923, even the more considerate the month was enraged. In Soviet Russia, Manning's prophecy has actually been realized. Antichrist, in the person of those apostate Jews, is already in power. And it seems to us like Manning must have been reading Sergei Nihilus. Marx, another apostate Jew, is his evangelist, and Christianity, especially the Catholicism of Rome, is the object of the bitterest hatred. But even if our author talked rather well of the month in her previous paragraphs, even here she can't believe that there's actually any reason for alarm with the Jews with the Bolshevik Revolution. Sharman Kadesh, who she quotes, is a Russian Jew, actually a Russian Jewess and a so-called British-Jewish historian. She is hardly an unbiased source regarding the Jewish conspiracy, and she is clearly an agent for it. Our author says that the Blackfriars, too, took the phrase that two out of three of Russia's leaders are Jews as a fact, and concluded evil is enthroned in Moscow. And actually, now we know that it was three out of three. Even Wikipedia now has to admit that Lenin was a Jew on the side of his mother. So, I don't know what was wrong with what she found with with this phrase taken by the Blackfriars, because it was absolutely true, and it was less than true. The true situation was even more than two out of three of Russia's leaders were Jews. Under the heading, Responses to Hitler's Germany, in relation to the Catholic press in Britain. 
Hitler's appointment as Reich Chancellor hardly created huge headlines in Catholic Britain. I tried to look for some of those headlines and came up blank. It was yet another new government of the German Republic that had been struggling with the effects of the deep economic crisis since 1929. Only the April boycott, and here our author will again show her bias, only the April boycott of Jewish shops in Germany brought the first indignant protests. The Leeds Labour Party expressed its abhorrence at the persecution of Jews, socialists, and communists, as if they are unbiased critics, another Marxist-leaning and probably Jewish-controlled group. Even Belloc and G.K. Chesterton joined the voices of protest, and Chesterton is not a Jew. He wasn't a very good Christian. He had some good ideas, but he wasn't a Jew. Even Belloc and G.K. Chesterton joined the voices of protest, albeit with an ambiguous twist. In a booklet published in 1933, Chesterton wrote, Today, although I still think there is a Jewish problem, and that what I understand by the expression, the Jewish spirit, is a spirit foreign in Western countries. I am appalled by the Hitlerite atrocities in Germany. I am quite ready to believe now that Belloc and myself will die defending the last Jew in Europe. Thus does history play ironical jokes upon us. I don't know exactly why Chesterton had that um, opinion. Uh, I would like to investigate it at some point in the future. Our author says that until the boycott of Jewish business in April 1933, National Socialism had mostly been discussed in passing notes, which hardly mention its fierce anti-Semitism. After the boycott, Catholic newspapers frequently reported on the fate of the Jews in Germany and condemned the anti-Semitism displayed there. And continuing to quote one of the one of the newspapers, but she doesn't identify which one. The boycott and the measure associated with it have been open openly directed against the Jews as a race, even against those Jews who have become Christian. Such an attitude is not only in acute conflict with all modern ideas of civilized government, it is a flagrant repudiation of the whole teaching of the New Testament. And here we have to make a few notes. Our author conveniently ignores the worldwide bo Jewish boycott of German goods and businesses, which was announced in March of 1933, a month before the Germans partially reciprocated. Furthermore, the Catholics were wrong about the anti-Christian nature of the boycott. A boycott of Jewish businesses is actually in keeping with the New Testament, not contrary to it. For instance, in 2 John, verses 9 to 11, where Christians are told not even to speak to those who deny Christ. If Christians are told not even to speak to those who deny Christ, why would the Catholics think 
that it's okay for Christians to support the businesses of those who deny Christ. It certainly wouldn't be okay. Hitler was the better Catholic. Continuing with Ulrike Erid. Nevertheless, in 1933, in Catholic newspapers, most articles ended on a note that the Jews owed their treatment to their own misbehavior. A journalist of the tablet condemned the violence that accompanied the boycott of Jewish businesses in April. Again, she's ignoring the, bo the worldwide Jewish boycott against Germans that started in March, a month before. However, he also acknowledged that he could understand the Germans' reaction. They had the same problem, too many rich Jews. Only one objection was raised. Germany should respond to this problem with judicial measures such as a numerous clausus, or a fixed number, for Jews. And we must note that there is a difference between rich Jews and Jewish thieves, Jews who operate clandestinely as a parasitical crime ring for the advancement of themselves at the expense of all others, while naive Christians treat Jews as equals, imagining them to have the same values. Our author can't even see the nature of the Jew in Bolshevik Russia. If she can't admit that, then she loses all credibility, and she's never going to admit anything negative concerning the Jews. Continuing with Miss Eret. Out of 18 recorded articles on the Jews in Germany in 1933, in the Catholic Herald, only seven wholly deplored their persecution. The majority were reports on the bishop's public denunciation of the Jewish persecution. And 11 ended on an anti-Semitic note, not dissimilar to that mentioned above. Out of 21 articles on Germany and the Jews in the Catholic Times, 14 were anti-Semitic. Only 5 spoke in favor of the Jews. These were mainly comments by readers. And two found equal arguments in favor of or against the Jews. To some extent, this attitude can be seen as a continuation of the anti-German hostility and violence during the First World War that often targeted German Jews in particular. The naivety with respect to the events and policies inside Hitler's Germany was not just a characteristic of the Catholic newspapers. According to Richard Griffiths, the British media and therefore public opinion did not show any particular interest in the German affairs until 1936, when German affairs became British foreign affairs, after Hitler had occupied the Rhineland, which is actually German territory, deprived of the Germans after the First World War. Here the author mistakes either apathy or indifference for naivety, which is not necessarily the case. She goes on to say, There was, however, a distinct Catholic motive to this attitude. The perceived need to protect Catholic interests was expressed in some cases as an open anti-Semitism. The question arises as to what sort of Catholic interest there was to safeguard in Germany.
a country where two-thirds of the population were Protestants, better known to English Catholic readers as Prussians. And at a time when the Catholic Church was not yet oppressed, by 1933 several events had happened in the Catholic world that had created a sense of persecution in some Catholics' minds. News of religious persecution in Russia and Mexico and the revolution in Spain in 1932 had left the impression that Catholics suffered even crueler persecution than the Jews in Germany. Yet these events received far less news coverage than Jews in Germany, much to the annoyance of Catholics in Britain. And the truth is that Jewish crimes against Christians were not at all well reported by the Jewish-controlled secular press, while alleged German crimes against Jews were magnified. Erit, who seems to be a brainwashed victim of ongoing denazification in Germany, cannot possibly look at her own statements from the opposing view. Continuing with Ulrika Eret quoting the Catholic Herald, it is true that Jews, especially the Masonic Jews, are the bitter and persistent foes of the Catholic Church. In Rome, a notorious Jewish Freemason, Nathan, signalized his position as mayor of the city by a most disgraceful and wanton insult to the Pope of the day. In Spain, the recent revolution has had wholesale Jewish support, and Einstein, a Jewish agnostic, is to go to Madrid as professor to replace and oppose Catholic influence. Whenever it can do so, Jewry is the leading and bitter enemy of the Catholic Church. But we would ask all fair-minded men to contrast the callous silence or approval with which the world as a whole has looked on while tyrants have trampled upon and plundered Catholics, and the generous outbursts that have taken place against the wicked but far less atrocious attacks on Jews in Germany. And that's absolutely true. In Spain, they were raping nuns and they were killing priests. The Germans, in turn, were only making the Jews do an honest day's work. But to the Jew, having to do an honest day's work is evidently a holocaust. Our author continues, In contrast to the Catholic Herald, where the silence of the British press towards the Catholic persecution was of central concern, the anti-Semitic articles of the Catholic Times continuously argued that the persecution of the Jews in Germany was justified because they, together with communism and Freemasonry, had caused today's international distress. How unrelenting some of the authors of the Catholic Times could be in this matter is shown by an example published just after the boycott of Jewish businesses in Germany, justifying their view against some readers' dismayed complaints, the editor answered. 
What we have pointed out was that international Jewry, as exemplified in international masonry, was a heinous thing, and its stamping out in Germany could not be less beneficial than in Italy, with the persecution of individual law-abiding and God-fearing Jews, we can have no patience. But to a nationalistic thrust and an international force or ring in Germany or elsewhere, we must adopt a different attitude. I don't know what a law-abiding Jew is. I guess one that hasn't been caught. Arguments that there are good Jews have plagued Christians now for 2,000 years, in spite of the warnings of Paul of Tarsus, who attested that they are contrary to all mankind. Continuing with Ulrike Eret, it's the female version of the name Ulrich, or Ulrich. Ulrich, I guess the Germans pronounce it. I think my ancestors left Germany to escape the language, because English is hard enough for me to pronounce. I'm kidding, kind of. At the same time the papers were embroiled in a discussion on a Jewish Masonic conspiracy, this allegation was not new by 1933. In the papers under consideration, it repeatedly appeared since 1926, intensified by 1932, and culminated in 1938. In the earlier years of 1926 and 1932, the notion of a Jewish conspiracy sprung from publications on Freemasonry by two Irish priests, Father Cahill and Father Fahey, and of course Edward Cahill was an Irish Jesuit, Dennis Fahey an Irish Catholic priest. In 1938, the Catholic Times printed long extracts of Father Dennis Fahey's book, The Mythical Body of Christ, and gave him considerable space to express his idea of a Judeo-Masonic conspiracy. To a number of Catholic writers... Fahey's theory seemed eventually confirmed by the creation of the Second Spanish Republic in 1931, and later in the Spanish Civil War. F. M. Desuleta, I guess, wrote in the in the month of Freemasonry as the secret agent of all European revolutions, funded from Moscow through the medium of Jewish financiers in America, the much-moneyed Israelite, or in reality Edomite, figured prominently in a body of devoted, in a body devoted to de-Christianizing nations, as the protocols boast through and through, and as the Jews have done in legislation and lawsuits in America for the last 150 years. The Blackfriars printed a plea for cleansing Spain of Freemasons and Jews in order to create a new nation. I guess that may have taken a lot of cleansing. By the time of Kristallnacht, she continues, in November 1938, all the factors mentioned above had been repeated over and over again in the Catholic newspapers and had almost become common currency. In 1938 and 39, various incidents sharpened the tone in Catholic newspapers, resulting in another steep peak on the anti-Semitic articles per month scale. These events were the Spanish Civil War. 
a Freethinkers' Congress in London, and Kristallnacht in Germany. The first especially was accompanied by numerous articles spreading a Jewish Masonic Bolshevik conspiracy, such as the distributist Gregory MacDonald's article after Franco's victory over the Republicans in 1939. I think she should have said spreading the news of, but she didn't want to admit that it was true. Where MacDonald claimed that Franco had won against the wandering Jews, the advances of the communist hordes. That is the meaning of our victory, he said. It is not over our brothers, but a victory over the world, over the international forces, over communism and masonry. Kristallnacht was a welcome opportunity for some to expound their anti-Semitic and pro-Nazi views. But the barbarism of the November pogrom met with the clearer condemnation in the Catholic newspapers. Still, anti-Semitic articles outnumbered the columns written in sympathy for the Jews. The tablet, the Catholic Times, and the Catholic Herald did not change their view that the Jews brought their fate upon themselves. Despite anger at the brutality of the pogrom, now in the case of Jewry there is no doubt at it being a hostile element to certain regimes. Unlike Jews, unlike Catholics, have a loyalty to their own society, which is more than spiritual or moral, it is racial and physical. On that note, and I thank her for collecting all of that wonderful material showing that many Catholic newspapers of the time were trying to expose what they knew was a Jewish plot against the world. On that note, she goes into a small subsection on positive articles on Jews. And we're going to read that as well. Positive articles on Jews or Judaism were few and far between. They increased in numbers with the onset of the Jewish persecution in Germany from 1933, but still lagged behind the number of anti-Semitic articles. Again, these articles mostly had a defensive purpose by refuting accusations of intolerance and anti-Semitism leveled at the Catholic Church. Jews funding, here we go with the good Jew nonsense again, Jews funding Catholic societies, Jews grateful for Catholic assistance, Jews praising Catholic bishops, all these themes found approval in the Catholic papers. Similarly, any anti-Semitic remarks published in the Anglican Church Times were singled out for criticism although the real aim here was to rebuke the Protestants, and, this is almost funny, supposed Christians falling over one another to please the devil. Religious discrimination, an experience Catholics could relate to quite well, had been condemned by the Church for many years. Consequently, any form of religious discrimination against Jews was criticized by Catholic papers too. Which is just incredible. Catholics basically arguing that the devil had a right to exist.
and be free in the meantime. In the case at the Liverpool magistrate who refused to issue a dancing license to celebrate a Jewish wedding on a Sunday, the Catholic Herald maintained that despite the differences between Catholics and Jews, such interference in religious traditions was outrageous. I think that having to get a, a license to dance is outrageous. I mean, we've come a long way from the medieval times, I gather. Although the Catholic Herald had never really abandoned its view that Soviet Russia was ruled by a band of Jews, it still regretted religious persecution that also included Jews. Catholic newspapers were generally firm that the rule of law also applied to Jews, naively believing that Jews would think that the rule of law applied to Jews, because they certainly don't. With the exception of the Vilna, pro, po, the Vilna pogrom in 1915, where they had only grudgingly criticized anti-Semitic violence, Catholic papers strongly condemned violent Jew hatred, as in the case of anti-Semitic disturbances in Dublin in 1926, where she has a quote, However unselfish the motive of the riots may have been, they were a breach of law. It is just as wrong to force a moneylender off his books as of any other form of property. Doubtless the Irish government will deal sharply with the incident. And, and with that, I don't really understand how the Catholic Church canonized Thomas Aquinas, who said in a letter to Margaret, the Duchess of Flanders, that the Jews should not be able, should not be allowed to keep any money that he gained by usury. So, here the Catholics are even defending that. Now under the heading, Responses to Catholic Newspapers by Jews and Catholics. The Jewish community did not leave these anti-Semitic outbursts without comment. Jewish newspapers, such as the Jewish Chronicle or Jewish World, were renowned for their effort in pointing out anti-Semitism in the national press and printing rejoinders that confronted myth with fact. In the late 1930s, I don't know how the Jews could confront myth with fact, in the late 1930s, the Jewish People's Council Against Fascism and Anti-Semitism, the JPAFA, I guess their love for acronyms goes way back. They probably had them in the time of Christ, too. Would actively fight against fascism by means of public demonstrations and conferences in order to disrupt the British Union of Fascist meetings. The Board of Deputies of British Jews, the BOD, on the other hand, called for a quieter, more considerate response to anti-Semitism in the form of lawsuits and appeals to Parliament. This was a matter on which the Board of Deputies, who mostly represented middle-class opinion in England, and the Jewish people's Council Against Fascism and Anti-Semitism, I guess that's a precursor to the Antifa, 
who appealed to working-class Jews of London's East End, could not agree upon. Records of the BOD, the Board of Deputies, shed some light on Jewish reactions to the anti-Semitism in the Catholic newspapers. Due to their middle-class respectability, the Board of Deputies was the, was the more likely addressee for members of the Catholic hierarchy in matters of Catholic-Jewish relations than the Jewish People's Council, who were ignored because of their alleged communist links. And, of course, they were the Antifa. Direct contacts between Catholic and Jewish communities were, however, rare. Archbishop Downey, here's the Archbishop Downey that the Metapedia website wrongly connected to the Catholic Gazette. Archbishop Downey seems to have been the most accessible Catholic bishop. Quite the opposite of what the Metapedia art, the, the the very brief Metapedia article, it's one sentence. Quite the opposite of what it may have inferred. The Board of Deputies set up a defense committee that monitored anti-Semitism in society and in print, sort of like the ADL. The committee's first reaction to the anti-Semitism in the Catholic Herald was letters to its editor, in which they refuted allegations that Jews were predominantly fraudsters, blasphemous enemies of the church, and Bolsheviks. However, these letters had no effect on the Catholic Herald's portrait of the Jews. Most of these rejoinders were not published at all, the letters in response, the letters to the editor, were not published at all, or they were used as a peg at which to hang further arguments to the Jews. The following letter to the board in 1932 from the Catholic Herald merely restated the prejudices to which the board had objected. And it says, whatever may be the attitude at your board towards the statements made in the article of the 14th instant, it is unfortunately true and cannot be denied by any impartial authority that in France, and indeed all over Europe, the influence of Masonry, and Jewish Masonry especially, has been constantly exercised against the Catholic Church. Does your board remember the famous dictum of Gambetta, that the day of the priest was over, and the day of the Jew had come? and that under his direction nearly every prefect of France was of the Jewish persuasion. Unfortunately, in connection with the revolution, the percentage of Jews who have dominated the rule of the Soviets has been enormous. The suggestion that these have not been anti-religious does not admit of discussion. It is no pleasure to the editor to point out what are unfortunately manifest facts, and he does not think that a merely religious or national prejudice should lead a representative body, such as that for which you speak and make statements, that are in the face of all evidence. So I guess at one time there were Catholics that directly stood up to Jews which is very much to their credit. Since most, returning to our author, since most of the committee's complaints to the Catholic news editors went unheard, 
the Board of Deputies saw it necessary to bring the Catholic hierarchy's attention to the anti-Semitic outburst of the Catholic newspapers. It's like, I'm telling the Pope on you. Chief Rabbi Hertz was first asked in October 1929 to take up this task. Unfortunately, neither the records of the Board of Deputies nor the Westminster Diocesan I'm sorry, Diocesan Archive tell whether Hertz agreed or Cardinal Bourne received such a letter, and if so, how Bourne reacted. The documents are more conclusive for the years 1937 and 38, a time when the specter of a Jewish Masonic Bolshevik conspiracy was again conjured up by the publications of Father Fahey in the Catholic Times. A year earlier, the Board of Deputies had already remarked on the harmful potential of Fahey's The Mythical Body of Christ that thrived to a great extent on vicious attacks on Jews. Fahey's book saw the Jews as prime movers of revolutions and accused them of founding the Soviet Republic and phony democracies in the West, systems which they allegedly exploited to their own advantage, as the protocols and other documents proudly boast, I must add. Large parts of the book dealt with current politics in Ireland, First, the alleged influence of Masons and Jews. Second, that the Irish Republic Brotherhood was inspired by Jewish banks. The Board of Deputies was, however, more concerned about the approval the book gained from Catholic journals, bishops, and the Irish hierarchy. The Villasky contacted Archbishop Downey of Liverpool regarding Fahey's influence among the Catholics. Downey answered, in July 1936. I noted the passages marked by you. It seems to me quite uncritical, and I will write about it to the bishop who has given an imprimatur. I have never heard of the author or of the book before. I do not think the publication will carry much weight. So if Archbishop Downey intervened on behalf of the Jews... It seems to be a half-hearted intervention. Our author continues and says, How mistaken Downey was! About Fahey's influence is shown in Fahey's numerous articles in Catholic publications, particularly the Catholic Times in 1938 and the favorable responses among the lower clergy. Again, the Board of Deputies asked the Catholic hierarchy to intervene with the Catholic Times in order to moderate the paper's anti-Semitism. Since the Catholic Times was owned by the Catholic Missionary Society, the Catholic bishops were in obvious contact. Furthermore, after a complaint by the Board of Deputies, Cardinal Archbishop Hinsley of Westminster had reprimanded another paper of the Missionary Society, the Catholic Gazette, in February 1936, for its favorable views on the Protocols of Zion, and that is the same issue from which we presented the one short article which we have this evening. So this is corroboration that this article did indeed come from a Catholic publication 
1936. In the matter of the Catholic Times in 1937, a letter of recommendation by Archbishop Downey eventually opened the doors to Cardinal Hensley, but had only limited success in influencing the Catholic papers' attitude towards Jews. The response of Cardinal Hensley's private secretary, Monsignor Collings, left some hope, but when he assured the representatives of the Board of Deputies that the Cardinal has taken steps which he hopes will prove effective to modify the attitude of that paper in the way the Board desired. However, the delegation of the Board received by Collings left empty-handed. Complaints about the Catholic newspapers, journalistic practice rarely arose from the Catholic community. In a letter to Bishop Williams of Birmingham, Father O'Hay of the Catholic Social Guild criticized the Catholic Times' exalted nationalism and the Catholic Herald's crude misinterpretation of Jewish life and its reluctance to print rejoinders. O'Hay insisted that these practices were no trivialities. Quite contrary to Downey's dismissive remarks on the importance of such articles, the trouble is that one finds many Catholics, even undergraduates, who believe that the Catholic press, the Catholic weekly press, is in some way official, and of course a journalist has to write in an authoritative tone. Catholics have been constantly told that the Catholic press alone is reliable. And of course that was in some degree true because at least much of the Catholic press was not at this time controlled by the Jews. Our author continues... Catholic newspapers were not subject to the internal censorship by the Catholic hierarchy, which was imposed on all theological publications by Catholics. Since they were not the owners of these publications, apart from the Catholic Times, which was owned by the Catholic Missionary Society, it would have been unmerited interference on their part. Yet, in the case of the Catholic Times, the hierarchy as superior to the Catholic Missionary Society was indeed responsible for the content of this newspaper. The reason why Cardinal Hensley did not react to the petition of the Board of Deputies in this instance is not clear from the sources. One reason might be, as Thomas Maloney suggests in a similar context, that Hensley did not like to be enlisted for particularist particularist courses. Yet it was not the case that Catholic lay media enterprises existed in isolation from the influence of the Catholic hierarchy. On the contrary, the editors of the Tablet, the Universe, and the Catholic Times were in regular and amicable contact with members of the hierarchy and their secretaries. These relations were used on other occasions to influence which news would not go to press. These were occasions unrelated to theological questions, and therefore, if the bishop's words to the Board of Deputies were true, beyond their influence, 
A statement by Monsignor Collings on the relationship between the press and the hierarchy is revealing. And it says, I stated that the Cardinal had no central control over the press. But it was suggested to me that if his eminence desired to do so, it must surely be apparent to everybody that an intimation by him or his brother bishops that it was not their desire that certain matters should be referred to in the Catholic press would readily be accepted by the owners of the papers. The bishops indeed exercised their influence on the Catholic press when it suited them. For instance, while in negotiations with the government about denominational schools, the bishops of England and Wales agreed at their annual general meeting to advise the Catholic press not to permit any correspondence on the education question. In this case, the hierarchy could not have reacted through the official institutional procedures of ecclesiastical censure. But there were other paths open, which were indeed used when deemed necessary to safeguard Catholic interests. And our author then goes on to discuss the similar situation with the Catholic press in Germany. We believe that Presenting these portions of this book has helped us in several ways. First, it has helped us to see what things the opposition has to say in regards to the so-called conspiracy literature. And in that manner, this stands as a critical review of Ulrika Eret's book, portions of which we may refer to in future segments of this series of presentations on the protocols. It has also helped us to see how sloppy some of the so-called internet researchers can be at times. Archbishop Downey obviously had nothing to do with the Catholic Gazette, which today seems only to be known from its article on the Jewish peril. So, Metapedia and all such online sources need to be checked and never taken for granted, but of course print books can make mistakes as well. At the same time, Ered has confirmed for us the legitimacy of much of the anti-Jewish Catholic literature that was circulating in Britain in the 1930s, since items such as the article on the Jewish peril from the Catholic Gazette and the writings of Father Dennis Fahey have been circulating around patriotic Christian circles and on the internet for quite some time. Otherwise, it seems that this material has been mostly ignored in the mainstream circles. We can also see that these men were not alone, as there were several other Catholic publications in Britain which were attempting to oppose, or at least to expose, the threatened Jewish world supremacy. And again, it is almost comical to see Ulrike Eret deny that a Jewish world conspiracy even existed, as today the objectives in the protocols are so far advanced in reality that if the Jews did not have the power to execute them, then a prophet must have written them. As we hope to have demonstrated here on many occasions already, and hope to do on many more in the months to come, the protocols are real. It is now at the point where we can safely assume that if one denies the reality of the protocols, then one must be a part of the conspiracy.
Thank you for listening. Praise Yahweh, the God of Israel, and good night.